0: Welcome to Total Wine & More.
2: I want something fun in the sun. You'll love this sparkling wine. Wow, great price. Find what you love, love what you find. At Total Wine & More,
0: drink responsibly B21. The I didn't realize you liked me that way
3: deal. Because it's one thing to receive McDonald's, but an entirely other thing to know that they woke up early to face the world and bring you McDonald's breakfast still hot in the bag. Appreciate you.
0: There's a deal for every morning. Now grab two loaded sausage burritos for only three bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
4: I'm Tamara Thomas, editor-in-chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the Dakwar family of medical news sites. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headline. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas, and welcome to Urban Health Weekly, where we talk about medical news and health topics that matter to you. I'm here with Jackie and Lou.
2: How are you guys?
4: Hey, hey guys. Well, here. Good over here. All right. Awesome. So um, on to medical news of the week. This just in, the FDA moves to ban sales of menthol cigarettes. I know we were doing something like that, similar here in New York, but now I it's- a,
1: They were already banned. I didn't even know. That's still like a thing, huh?
4: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's kind of what I was saying. Like, I thought we did that already. but a, yeah, I thought that was like 10 years ago. Uh, no, this is- No, 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 no. This is to, to remove menthol from cigarettes. So what and I it heard- that
1: It's been getting discussed for so many years?
4: Well, yes, it has been uh-huh. discussed for many years because um, it, it appears that the science is saying that um, about 85% of people of color, black people, um, smoke menthol cigarettes. And that if the menthol was taken out of the cigarettes that less people would smoke. I don't know if i buy that but you know lou's got to be in his bonnet about that one too so we'll discuss anyway the food and drug administration announced the plan to ban sales of menthol flavored cigarettes in the united states a measure many public health experts hailed as the government's most meaningful action in more than a decade of tobacco control efforts wow yeah a decade The proposed ban is expected to have the deepest impact on black smokers, nearly 85% of whom use menthol cigarettes, compared with a rate of 29% among white smokers, according to a government survey. If effective in reducing smoking, the ban could significantly diminish the burden of chronic disease and limit the number of lives cut short by one of the most hazardous legal products available. The proposed ban would, among other things, improve the health and reduce the mortality risk of current smokers of menthol cigarettes or flavored cigars by substantially decreasing their consumption and increasing the likelihood of cessation, the FDA Commissioner uh, Dr. Robert Califf told the Senate committee Thursday. Menthol is a chemical derived from the mint plant that can also be made in a lab. It is included in cigarettes to make smoking less harsh, providing a cooling sensation in the throat. Public health experts say menthol cigarettes have been heavily marketed to Black people to devastating effect. African-American men have the highest rates of lung cancer in America, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, Lou, you had to be in your bonnet about this. So I'm going to let you have the floor. Okay, a couple
5: of things. I mean, three things. Number one is, what I just ban? Him? Cigarettes. Why, why... Because you can't tell gold. grown
4: people what to do. This is not
1: prohibition. Oh, oh, you,
5: you certainly are. You're telling them they can't use menthol cigarettes. So you are telling grown people what to do. Um, Aren't they
1: telling the grown manufacturers what to do? Well,
5: what, what, what they're trying to do is say, well, you know, you're using menthol. So if you use the other brand, maybe you won't like the other brand that maybe you'll slip, maybe you'll stop smoking or that. I, I, mean, uh, I, I mean, look, if, you, if it's no good, it's no good. You know, it's like during when they had prohibition, which was a bad idea, but when they had prohibition, it wasn't like, whoa, you can, you can um, let's, va- let's ban vodka flavored, orange flavored vodka, but regular vodka is okay. No, it's not okay. If you feel that, and I'm not saying that it's not a good idea to ban cigarettes. I think it's a great discussion to have because obviously a lot of life minutes and a lot of life years are, are wasted with cigarette smoking including dollars, uh, including, you know, people that should not be sick are sick. So my feeling, and budget goes there, uh, there's dozens of reasons why, why cigarettes shouldn't be smoked. However, if you're gonna ban it, ban it. Don't, don't play around with it. The second thing is you're making an assumption that people are not just gonna say, hey, let's go from mental to regular, even though the taste is crummier. But you know what? The, the flavor, it's kind of like when I went from soda to coffee. I needed my caffeine and I was going to have my caffeine in the morning. So I just switched poisons.
1: These, yeah. people,
5: these people go switch poisons.
1: Yeah. So in other words, you're saying, well, what does the flavor have anything to do with it? It just makes it taste fresher.
5: I, I would say. Well, it know, makes
4: it more tolerable. Yeah. yeah.
5: What I would say is let's put bands on how much nicotine can be in a cigarette. How about how about that one? Let's let's start with let's start with a, a non race based health based um, feeling as to where we're going to go. With
4: this. I mean, that's a good point. Um, I,
1: I remember when I was. A, did you guys ever try a cigarette in your lives? Like, did you ever? Like, when I was a teenager, yeah. When I was a teenager, I went to Six Flags. And, uh, and I bought one of those novelty things. They used to have that, like in case of emergency break glass and they had oh, like a yeah, okay. in there. And I was like, wow, I have no adult supervision. And I went in and I bought this like little, you know, novelty thing. And I broke it open and it was a menthol cigarette in there. And it was a cool, remember like that. And, yeah. and I remember being like, Hey, this isn't that bad. It's so tasty. Like, And normally I would have been repulsed by like that flavor, but that menthol was a little bit, it did make it, you know, tolerable. Uh, But aren't they just going to move the menthol? I mean, do they have menthol in like vape? Do they have menthol in other things? Is that just Probably,
4: yeah. But I don't know if this includes removing it from vape as well. They haven't said that. Um, mm. I don't know if it's a good well so my thing is this you know it's just like what the alcohol industry did with their drinks they realized uh-huh. there was a certain part of the market who didn't enjoy the disgusting taste of right the- so they make it delicious. So they made it delicious and sweet and they increased their market share now if the uh-huh. government turns around and says you have to take the sweet out of your drinks I bet you that market share is going to shrink now, people are just going to find other ways to get their, you know, to get their intoxication on. Like, look, at the end of the day, people want to be intoxicated um, one way or the other, whether it's by cigarettes or everyone has their vices, whether it's right. sweets, whatever. I'm just saying that the hope is that by taking the menthol out, that more people will be like, "Ooh, yuck! this, yeah, this doesn't taste good at all. But... It, The menthol blunts the tarry taste. And that's why people can tolerate it. And once that's gone, maybe some smokers will give up the habit. I mean, that's the hope. I don't know if that's actually going to happen because at the end of the day, it is an addiction Mm -hmm. and people tend to not so easily give up their addictions until they're actually ready to. And I don't know that it's going to be by some government edict that says, take the flavor out of cigarettes. So you're right there, but as far as saying, well, ban cigarettes and all that, then, then you got prohibition all over again. And then people are going to be, you know, doing all kinds of underground stuff to get what they want. Just like cocaine, cocaine is not legal in this country. And yet everywhere you turn around, people got cocaine. That's not good for you, but people, so you can't really stop people from doing, um, harmful things to themselves. It's just, I'm the only species, by the way, that seeks out this kind of uh, (laughs) toxic ways of of entertaining ourselves. But that's another
5: that's another
4: matter. (laughs) Yeah,
5: but hear me out on this. You know, I'm just laying out the options. I'm with you. If I had to choose, I don't think that we should ban cigarettes. If people want to do something, uh, I think they have the right to do it. And I think there, but you're right. there is a
4: there is a sort of infantilization
5: <laughs> exactly. going on. Like
4: no one's putting these cigarettes in people's hands. And yeah. you know what? Do something about the marketing. You know, okay. maybe don't get them to start smoking to begin with.
5: Well, you know, they, they have done, um, you know, they've prevented, but the they prevented the prevented cigarette ads on TV, they prevented them on
4: uh, in magazines. In
5: magazines, things like that. But the true addictive uh, part of a cigarette is the nicotine.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: scientifically this can be this can be uh, monitored it can be looked at and all of these things you know all these things are um are preventable uh in terms of that so th- i can see an edict that the fda says let's make the cigarettes have only blah blah nicotine in them or minimal nicotine or no nicotine. I'm sure they can figure out how to do this. But-
1: Wasn't that the big argument that took place years ago with like that movie, The Insider? It it was that they manipulated the levels of nicotine. Yes. They adjusted it it, and they viewed cigarette as a vehicle, as a- Right. As a nicotine vehicle. It was purely for that.
5: Right. So take out the addictive qualities uh, in cigarettes that are artificially put in there. I can see the FDA getting behind that and I can see the FDA doing that.
4: So you think this is an empty gesture then?
5: No, I think there's a political gesture, you know, just showing and saying, oh, look at how we're saving X. Look what we're doing. Look at what we're doing for you, but not for you because we're treating. Now, The FDA's job. So your
4: issue with it is the is the the reason that they're doing it?
5: My my there's there's things there in those cigarettes that cause addiction. Period. Period. Mm -hmm. They're not even touching that. You know, it's Uh, it's, a false flag. I
1: Mm -hmm.
5: I mean, you know, if you want to regulate the sale of cigarettes because it's dangerous, which is Mm -hmm. what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Look at what is the real danger. The real danger is the addictive qualities, not the mental, not the taste. Mm -hmm. These people are addicted. You know, the mental is only going to have them switch. Maybe a few, yeah, maybe 10, 20% of the people that are doing them are going to drop out. But if not, they're just going to convert.
4: Well, some people, when the price of, of, of cigarettes, when people couldn't buy Lucy's anymore and they had to buy whole packs and the price went up, some people did give up. They were like, it's just too expensive, I can't.
1: Okay. Uh, that you do hear a lot that people are like, the price is so high. It was the yeah. price that made me quit. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So, there's a, there's so a it's movement. another,
4: it's another, I guess, you know, um, another, um, you know, another nail in the the coffin, so to speak.
5: You know, I, I went, one, the first thing that I did when when this was announced is mm-hmm. I went to the stock market. And I saw what was the effect of Philip Morris. You
4: have Philip Morris in your, you have, you have. No, 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 no. Oh my God! Philip Morris. No, 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 no. He has in his portfolio. How dare you? Well, you brought it up.
5: No, I went. You would not have brought it up if
4: you
1: hadn't had it in your portfolio. I wanted to see
5: how serious this was because to me you wanted to see what
1: world. this is going to result in. So, oh.
5: so, you know, if they <laughs> banned iPhones, I would go on to Apple stock and say, okay, what's the effect here? What what the people, you know, what's the smart money set? Actually, the Philip Morris stock went up.
4: Really? Stockpiling? Really? No,
5: they, they, they're laughing right now. They're laughing because they're saying, okay, they banned mental. These people are just going to switch. They're scientists, these people have more data than, than we yeah. can, than we can have here. Yeah, right. well, what so, other
4: tweak can we do to make it more powerful? So the, yeah.
5: you know, the, this these are companies between Philip Morris and Philip Morris International, you're looking at market capitalizations of close to a trillion. They're throwing RJ Reynolds and throwing British tobacco and all those companies. And that's the first thing I did. I said, I said, okay, let me see what the cigarette stock's doing. They actually went up.
0: Mm-hmm. And why did they
5: go up? because they realize this is an empty gesture. This is not gonna hurt sales. Okay. It's gonna uh, flip over. So what? Are, what is going on here? It's a gesture So it's political
4: look. pandering then. Absolutely, like in my mind.
5: It, it, look, making sure you look busy. <laughs> the, yeah, exactly, and, and I'm a little surprised at the FDA, uh, you know- Are they, you
4: surprised at the FDA? Really? You know, <laughs> they,
5: they become so political. They, they come. They, they, you know, <laughs> And I think we saw that maybe- I thought during... those
4: corn syrup is generally regarded as safe. Come yes. on. Yeah.
5: And, uh, it and it's is... in everything. Yeah. So so there you go. There you go. All
4: right, you have made your point. I see what you're saying. It's kind of like, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of political pandering. It doesn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who these scientists are that, that presented this um, to the Senate committee. Oh, this is the FDA commissioner. Yeah, the Where did he get this uh, literature from? Ugh. African-American men have the highest rates of lung cancer in America, according to the CDC. So this is the CDC. Mm-hmm. Okay, need we say more? Mm-hmm. <laughs> more uh, listen, I think, sure, why not? But yeah. I, I see what you're saying in terms of like, okay, so you're only doing it because you want to save Black lives. What about no, other no, lives? I, they're
5: not taking anybody's lives. No, I know they, that, they but,
4: but, but, but the, the way they're positioning it is, oh, you know, eighty five percent of mm-hmm. uh, menthol use black smokers are menthol users, and mm-hmm. this may save those people's lives. Well, how yeah. about you know? Anyway, let me not get well. Okay,
5: you know, but,
4: but like, I, I smell what you're stepping. Yeah, in.
5: I, I would I say why. if you want to save lives, which is what you should be doing. Look at the nicotine content in cigarettes and pass legislation. Yes, on get that.
4: your own there you go. Get there your you own go. scientists into those you labs. You're
5: going to say white Find lives. Find out black exactly. Lives, all lives.
4: Find out. Oh, don't start with that all lives matter stuff. Oh, is that a group? Don't, don't. No, but that's what that's what people say to dismiss the Black Lives. Oh, matter. Oh, I'm sorry. Story. I
5: didn't. All
4: lives matter.
5: I didn't. I didn't. It wasn't before that. They should change their name
4: to Black Lives Matter too. Well uh, that's
5: I mean, a <laughs> I think it be called no negative. Oh. Uh, you know, if, if you're really concerned and you really want to do this, bar the addictive qualities in cigarettes. That's where they should go. Not I the agree. flavors. Agreed. Not because these groups like the, one and the other. Yeah, get out of
4: here. I agree. Well, yeah, it's an it's an empty gesture. I get it. Yeah. I want
5: an argument. Is this is this a special Your point is
4: me? taken? Don't gloat. Just be <laughs> denied enjoy. again. The,
5: I win another one again. Take the,
4: take the W and like move on. Yeah, <laughs> Speaking of high fructose corn syrup, colorectal cancer rising in younger people. 34-year-old TikTok star urges young people to get screened after colon cancer diagnosis. Wow. Oh. TikTok star Randy Gonzalez, who was the father behind the Enki Boys, shared on his account that he had been in, diagnosed with colon cancer more than six months ago. It's the same type of cancer 43-year-old Chadwick Boseman, was famously wow. recognized for his iconic role in the movie Black Panther, was diagnosed with. Six months ago, I got diagnosed with stage four cancer. Stage cancer. four. Stage four, he said on TikTok. I kept it to myself, and I felt like it was selfish because it was personal. But I felt like I can use my situation to give awareness to young men like myself. So he's only 34, and he was told by doctors it's very rare for young men to be diagnosed with this type of cancer. In fact, medical professionals across the country are seeing colon and rectal colorectal, collectively, cancer rapidly increasing among young people. There is an epidemic of younger patients being diagnosed with colon cancer under the age 50. Anton Bilchik, MD, PhD, surgical and oncologist, chief of medicine and director of gastroenterology intestinal research program at the St. John's Cancer Institute at Providence St. John's Health Center in California said. Overall, we're expecting about 20,000, 20,000 new cases among young people under 50 this year in the United States to be diagnosed with colon cancer. For Gonzalez, he was experiencing pain in his upper abdomen, and his wife then suggested he get a colonoscopy, where he later discovered he had colon cancer. At his current stage, He's, um, he said he has two to three years to live, but with chemotherapy treatment, he's expected to have five.
1: Oh my gosh, and he's yeah. 34.
4: Yeah, although the exact cause of colon cancer is not known, it's important to recognize the symptoms and signs of this type of cancer, no matter your age. Oh, wow. Wow,
1: and That's... his wife was like, why don't you go get, he wouldn't have even gone, maybe not without his wife making. No,
4: no.
3: Wow.
4: But let me just say, I'm so glad that he's using his platform to young people to get tested and to think about their colon health. Because let me tell you, Chadwick Boseman's death shook the Black community in a way that is it's reverberating today. And I hope this guy, you know, is going to have similar impact on young people um, and get people to take their health seriously.
5: I think we've got to we, and I'm saying we as a society, not we as us three. Have got to start looking at this new emerging trend of colon cancer striking people, you know, 20 years. Young
1: people. Yeah. Yeah,
5: young people. And what is it? You know, is it food? Is it of course lifestyle? It's well, it could, be, it could be lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle, with, you know. It's all of those things.
4: Having- it's the food, it's the alcohol and it's sedentary lifestyle Look, it's the fast the, i'm not going to exercise i'm going to have surgery lifestyle
5: yeah i i don't know what it is i
1: bet it's I mean, a
4: processed food lifestyle yes mm-hmm. yes
5: you know and and much like you know it's a story that i i think i've told on the show before where with american indians diabetes was also almost unknown and once they went to a western diet it you know, their numbers yeah, went they up higher. It, they than they call it the
4: white mans Yeah, means.
5: they went up higher wow. than anybody else. And it was just because they weren't used to that. Their bodies were genetically not used to this type of stuff. I mean, maybe our our, our bodies are just not genetically modified to eat. You know, I don't know. We're foods. not.
4: But you know what was interesting that I read um, a couple of days ago? I read that um, Asian women that live in their native countries their rates of cancer are very low and then when they come to this country and adopt the habits of this country their rates for cancer become the same as other women in this culture wow we've been saying that too
1: though hasn't that been going on that as soon as like any country starts adopting that western diet oh yeah just does- You know, suddenly obesity creeps in, diabetes creeps in. It's just, it's a disaster of a diet. And it's also linked to poverty.
5: Because, Ah, you know, studies have also shown, you know, longevity versus that. So if you're able to afford organic foods, if you're able to afford- But this guy's
4: not a poor guy. He's got like the, the, well, this Inky Boys. has got overall. like 1.5 million. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure mean, they're making good money. It doesn't mean that
5: you know. It, it doesn't mean that um that 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 it's that he's uh you know eating healthy.
4: Okay, but, but be, then then say that. But I I agree with you on the poverty front. But he but just became he just became rich
5: now. He had twenty didn't he have like twenty years of poverty and then Where did a, you
4: where did you get that from?
5: He was rich all his life.
4: I don't know if he was rich all his life, but Well
5: you just said he had money.
4: Well yes, he has he's a he's a TikTok star. He has the Okay, popular... TikTok
5: has only been here for three years. Okay, you know, but because you're a TikTok star now. He, he he you know, if he's 30 years old, he had twenty seven years of lifestyle A and three 27 years. Twenty seven
1: years of maybe not the best uh maybe processed food, who knows? Yeah.
5: Yeah, what I'm saying is that you know now with inflation and, and God, I hope this is not getting political, but you know you can really see the differences in how people eat. I mean, when you go to a supermarket, yeah, you, you know, half a cart is now 200 bucks.
1: Yeah, I really noticed the difference of that in the last few weeks. And, the Price and, of food is woof. And how is somebody? Yeah, how is somebody going to yeah, yeah. live?
5: and uh, you know okay so now i can start making people are going to start making choices i think at the shopping cart level and those choices may not be healthy choices is all i'm saying when you're Uh, when you're doing your shopping you should kind of be bank account agnostic where you're saying okay i want to buy the best avocado not i want to buy the avocado a lot of
4: people don't like that because a lot of people don't realize that there's difference a lot of people think like that Organic is like a hoax. It's, it's, there's no difference that it's equal in quality and it's just more expensive for no reason. Well, like They don't yeah. really fully understand that there is an, an intrinsic and extrinsic difference in the food, um, well, the way it's grown. Then they should go back the to our bananas. show. Yes, the show with the dirty dozen that you talked about. Yeah. That was well, helpful. But a lot of people just don't know from from when. I remember one time I was at the supermarket and I was buying um, some cheese. I'm ashamed to say, but I was buying, some, <laughs> <laughs> I was buying some, some cheese and I was getting like I was making sure I got What's like organic cheese. Well, I'm not really supposed to be eating cheese, but I got organic cheese. And these two women were standing next to me and um, saw me taking the organic cheese and they were about to reach for it. Then they saw the price and they reached for the regular cheese. Mm-hmm. And right there, they were just like, eh, it's no difference. We're just going to get this cheese and save money. Right. And, you know, they probably looked at me like I was silly for spending all that money. Privilized person, you. Right. Or an organic organic cheese. But it's because people really don't fully understand. Like they understand on a simple, on a basic level that organic is better. But they don't know why it's better. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Better doesn't mean to them that the stuff that they're choosing is bad. You see what I'm saying? If something yeah. is just better, it's like you can shop at, at Target or you can shop at, um, I guess, Forever 21 or something yeah. like that. And you can get, you know, fast fashion clothes and you can look mm-hmm. um, nice. Yeah. Or you can shop at a higher end shop and look really nice. Mm-hmm. And most people choose to just look nice right? Mm -hmm. And I think people see food the same way. They don't see it as harmful. They don't see it. They might be
1: seeing food as luxury, as opposed to uh, healthy (laughs) and necessity.
4: Right. But they're not thinking about food as information where food is going into your body and your body is your temple. And you have to be careful what you put into that. Like like a lot of people don't understand that. And so that's what goes into the choices they make. It's like, oh, don't be ridiculous. I'm not going to spend that much money. This is just as good.
2: Mm-hmm. I told oh, you only
4: bought that woman who was preparing the food on on the, the oh god was that TikTok that video with the woman was uh, she's well, like I just so use
2: time,
5: yeah.
4: I just use any old, Oils, any old oil yes. any old oil any old any old and she was just throwing but, but her nails look gorgeous you know right and so that's what I'm saying is that people don't like prioritize that because they don't see the they don't see the food as harmful they just see it as. It's just as, it's just as good.
1: They're not seeing what you've been talking about, which is that food food is an investment in your health.
4: Right. Because on the back end of of years of eating like that, you have extreme medical bills that you can never dig yourself out of. So you, you know, it's like, what is that? What is that term? Uh, an ounce of prevention, a pound of cure yeah you know, people are not taking the ounce of prevention they're not seeing it as an ounce of prevention because it's expensive because it's hitting their their pockets now but they're not thinking about on the flip side of that how much money they're going to have to spend on health care if at all right you know some people just go straight to buying the plot like well i can't afford this i got cancer i can't afford this i'm just gonna buy a plot and just live out my years Mm-hmm. So it's just something to think about. Like some people prioritize, like they'll go to the Nike drop or whatever. I, I'm dropping brands like crazy. Mm-hmm. But, but, but my <laughs> point is I'm talking about brands that mm-hmm. you know are recognizable so people can understand what I'm trying to say. People will not settle and say, wow, these Nikes are really expensive. I'm gonna get some uh, Kessies instead. They're just as good. And, right. But that's what they do with food all the time. They say, well, I'll just get this, 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 just cheaper brand. It's there's no difference. Yeah. Food needs to become, you know, part of the regular lexicon so that people can understand the choices that they're making. They don't understand the choices that they're making because they're not, they're not being told.
5: Well, you know, as as I've aged, I, I've come to the realization that I if I have a hundred dollars to spend on food, I'm gonna spend it on good food. It's not about getting empty calories. It's but about how long stuff. did
4: it take you to get there?
5: Took me a lot of decades.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> a lot of decades and a lot of trial and error. And Wouldn't that
1: of- be great of- if it started automated. earlier? Yeah.
5: But, you know, I mean, the biggest investment one can make on the- is on yourself. That's, to me, your your number one investment. I agree. And, and, you know, when it comes to, um, when it comes to food, that's, that's top five, you know, and, uh, and I'm telling people don't skimp on the food, look at the ingredients. It's not about price. If you can't
4: pronounce it, you shouldn't eat it. Yep. By the way, I know I, I shouldn't go there. God help me for this, but I just want to point out that there was no dismissing his concerns, no second guessing, not at least that he mentioned. No gaslighting. He had pain. He got tested. He got diagnosis and he got- Oh! A- I just I- want to leave you with that. He did not get the runaround. He not get the accused of having anxiety. He and, and three doctors. Yep. He didn't get his pain dismissed. He got care. He didn't have to. I- I'm just saying.
3: Wow. <laughs> yes.
4: I'm just putting that out there. That's my little mic drop. And (laughs) I'm sorry to to do this, but I just wanted (laughs) to take this opportunity to just point that out. God help me, because I know this is not like the time, but I do, you know, um, wish him well. And I'm really glad that he did this. All right. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. And we're back. So we were talking about uh, food supply and um, prevalence of illness as a result of, hmm. Well, we were talking about the, the so the article was actually on the mm-hmm. the um, the rise in colorectal cancers right. in young people. And then we began talking about
2: it's official. Summer is almost here. The sun is getting-
3: as a person with a very deep voice. I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns, but a deep voice doesn't sell B2B and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash
2: switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Getting brighter, the days are getting longer, and your lawn is ready for some love. Get everything you need for a season spent outside with Memorial Day savings from the Home Depot. Manicure your yard to perfection with lawn care tools from RYOBI. Then get your garden going with vegetables and herbs from Bonnie Plants Harvest Select, plus mulch and soil from Vigoro and EarthGrow. Get your lawn as ready as you are for summer in the sun. Feels like Memorial Day at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.
4: The fact that people are just not educated about food. Mm -hmm. But what about people who, um, educated or not educated, just simply don't have the means to provide themselves with healthy, fresh food? or such as um, the chronically um, such as the the unhoused or mm-hmm. the housing insecure
5: right
4: that 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 population I mean I don't even know what to, to say um, I had an interview with Jacob Hoshberg, who's a health data scientist and he you know, gave me some startling information about some diseases uh, in terms of so the diabetes rate is higher, the congestive heart failure rate is higher among the uh, housing insecure. It's just a really, really sad wow. situation. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they're getting the medical care that they need uh, if if the rates of cancers among those people, because let's face it, you have to have insurance in order to have a colonoscopy. Are these people getting the care
1: that they need? They can't possibly be getting regular health care when they need it. They can't possibly be getting, um, you know, unprocessed food on a regular basis. They can't possibly be getting that. How how would they be getting that unless you have reliable shelter and sort of within a community? Who's Who's following up? How does that work?
4: Yeah. Oh. And they have no stove
1: mm-hmm.
4: most of the time. They have no refrigerator you know, they're living from either from couch to couch or they're just living, you know, under some bridge somewhere or some encampment. If mm-hmm. they're lucky enough to own a, uh, you know, a, 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 what do you call those things that people go camping with?
1: Oh, like a sterno or like one of those like little, like a portable,
4: you mean a tent or do you yes, mean- a tent, <laughs> You can
5: yeah. tell uh, yeah, I, yeah. I can tell tell you. You so rough again. Yeah, yeah,
4: that's right. I go camping all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I don't. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. So if they're lucky enough to even have a tent, mm-hmm. um, where are they going to store food? You know, for perishable food, you have to have some sort of storage. Well, forget. You know, let's
5: look at the data. I, I like to. Look and they're the probably data. looking
4: at looking at like calorically dense food to carry them from time uh, to time right yeah, they're not like yeah, processed yeah. food processed food that's portable and cheap
1: and Thank available God, I, yeah. i've
5: never been homeless i think they just, oh my they gosh i fill their bellies for the day
4: exactly
1: but uh,
5: and whatever it is it is uh but let's look at the data a little bit you know we all romanticize the days of cavemen i guess some of us do and and living out in the west and out in the Are you taking a knock
4: at paleo? No,
5: I'm not taking a knock at that. What I'm saying is that if we look at the data and life expectancies based on graves and based on on data that we found, you know, our ancestors going back millennia their life expectancy was 30 years, 30, 40 years. Wow.
1: Yeah. They they and, uh they procreated really early and then they pretty much dropped dead not too right. long after and, that. And then
5: But it you wasn't know,
4: because of chronic illness, it was because they were being well, chased by some progress. Like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, or they or they, they got crushed or they, they fell to their death. Some
5: of them, yes. But you know, They didn't they, just they didn't they, they had to die they or didn't, something. they
4: didn't get old.
5: Whether they were
1: in cities,
4: they didn't prematurely they didn't prematurely
1: die. They They didn't necessarily have chronic illnesses. That's what I'm saying. They died. They just died young. I think that
5: you know that that death of that young death.
4: And me. it would be probably
1: something and, as simple as they got years.
4: injured by a spear and then the infection no, killed well, them. It's, oh, you're, you're going
5: you're going into Cecil B DeMille land where everybody no, got I'm not killed. going into Cecil <laughs> D. <and if> more <laughs> no. people died of people who died of natural causes. You but, went back
4: to caveman days. So no, no. Let's, let's Okay, do, let's
5: move forward to, to the to agricultural, agricultural. The, Okay, the let's industrial revolution. Okay, the, the industrial early 1900s life expectancy was about 50 years. No bears were roaming New York City. Maybe a horse, but not a bear. Anyway, the thing is that the compilation or aggregation, not aggravation, but aggregation of unhealthy living. You know, if you take the childhood diseases that were that were not treated, then you subject the body to a lot of things and a lot of diseases that we've eradicated Mm
4: -hmm. right
5: now. Uh, The inability to get any health care. Mm-hmm. the inability to be warm at night.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
5: you, you know, you start adding these things, the, the mental stress that must come with being homeless, uh, all of those things, if you add them all together, mm-hmm. they have to take years away from your life.
4: Oh, yes.
1: I for sure. Yeah, yes. for sure. Add
5: it together. I mean, you know, like we now- So why didn't
4: you just say poverty? Well, I had to
5: start somewhere. Well, I I, and somewhere I
1: guess also we're defining the different ways that poverty- presents i guess that you know it's it's how it do, what it does to you i yeah. suppose i mean it's yeah. got to be so stressful They're, i don't see how you can't have diabetes and heart condition if yeah. you're right. homeless yeah
5: the other day i i was carrying some furniture around and the next day i wasn't feeling well i'm not saying i was sick but i i wasn't feeling 100 you weren't feeling your best and that was just carrying two things around and, and me being woo, 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 woo woe is me can you imagine feeling like that every day and every day Yeah, or when
1: you just get a lousy night's sleep when you get a lousy night's sleep or you sleep on like if you slept on the floor instead of on the couch or on your bed you know you don't feel as good you're not
0: functioning or
5: or it starts raining at 3 a.m and when we hear hear the thunder or the rain we wake up and we roll over and blah 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 can you imagine that stuff is coming on your head yeah, you know, or or a honking horn or whatever, waking you yeah. up, and some dude trying to steal your shoes. So, so I, I gotta say that the, you know the cumulative stress of being in that kind of condition can get to you. And now we're starting to just look at the science of of that, and and how how that how that uh, you know just permeates. Uh, into it Uh, you know I I don't know you know Jackie maybe your college days uh, you had um, you had um, you know those experiences you know where you know you were out all night and
1: yes I remember those days I was pretty I remember showing up to work the next day and you know not grumbling but I certainly wasn't 100 Uh, percent I've been camping before I can't believe anybody camps on purpose it's so like Right. I, you're, you're shot the next day the ground is hard you know like oh my god
5: yeah exactly like you know so so I, so I, and now you know for the first time and I'm really excited to be able to listen to this interview is that you know for the first time we're starting to put some science on this and say hey if this is your condition you can expect to live why amount less years in your life so that's kind of interesting, and it's it's kind of it's kind of good. I well, the goal
4: of the goal of the data, according to Mr. Hochberg, is to get city agencies involved in providing care for these individuals, getting them you know from the beginning, whatever the beginning is, and immediately pairing them up with healthcare providers or nurse to sort of walk them through, to just have um, some sort of system in place to catch them so they don't fall through and die from these chronic illnesses so that these illnesses can be managed on some level, get them regular care. Look, you and I, we go to the doctor, for example, and the doctor says, come back in six months or come back in three months because I want to check your blood work again have that they don't have that luxury of right of being able to they don't know where they're going to be in three months they don't even exactly have no idea where they're going to be in three months so a system like this that would give them some hope of some um some semblance of normalcy in, tor- in terms of care would be what um the goal is uh, of this uh this data so let's take a listen to um my interview with jacob Hotchberg sounds good all right. And I'm speaking with Jacob Hochberg, executive director of customer insights at Arcadia, a population health data company. He's here to talk with Urban Health today about the link between housing insecurity and chronic illness. Thanks for talking with me today.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me.
4: All right, let's get started. So, tell us about your background.
6: Sure. So, uh, I spent seven years at Stewart Healthcare Network, so large ACO in the, the Northeast. Um, started in the very early days of value-based care as a data analyst. Uh, and in my time there, I worked closely with care managers to help build out care management programs and evaluate the effectiveness of those programs. Uh, I also do a lot of ad hoc analytics into, you know, what are the next opportunities to look at? Where should, where should we invest resources to, to build um, value for, for Steward and in the communities we, we serve? After that, I came over to Arcadia and started the Customer Insights team. been here for about three years, and and we work with our customers to do ad hoc analytics and also help them look for value opportunities and and proactively give our customers information on uh, where they might be able to effectively help their patients. Uh,
4: So what was the impetus for doing this research?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So when I was at Steward, we always wanted to build out a program around social determinants of health. And we had a lot of challenges identifying the right patients. And then because we couldn't identify patients that we could support with these programs, we couldn't justify the investment. And we always kind of were stuck in this cycle where we couldn't invest enough to identify the right patients. And as a result, we couldn't run programs effectively or even build programs and fund them. So about two years ago at Arcadia, an analyst and I really started digging into all of the data we had to see if we could find better ways to identify patients Uh, with various social concerns, like housing insecurity, food insecurity, social adversity. Uh, And we built out a mechanism to identify a larger number of patients than than you otherwise could using kind of standard methods of just looking in claims or clinical data. Uh, After we built out this process, we we suddenly were able to identify a larger number of homeless patients than we otherwise would have been. So for instance, back in my steward days, we were usually doing analysis on maybe 30, 40 patients we identified as homeless. Here we were able to you know, identify about 2,500 patients for our study wow. who were housing insecure in Medicaid populations. And then we were able to start to compare them to other members in Medicaid populations. And that's where the results really kind of shocked me personally. And that's where we, we really dug in and, and did a bunch of analysis to, to try and bring some of these trends to life.
4: And what was your methodology?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So we, we looked for, there are a few different components. So the first piece was, you know, how do we identify people? So that was, there's specific codes that are built uh, on an insurance claim that can be used to identify a patient as homeless. They're not used very frequently, but when they are used, they're effective. So we use those codes. Uh, we looked in EHR systems for assessments that were done. So if a patient was asked, you know, how many times did you have a place to sleep this month? If they said, you know, less than, less than five, uh, nights they had somewhere to sleep, then we could flag them as homeless through that assessment. We also have a care management tool where we were able to really look at patients who were screened by care managers using our product with similar questions and answers and identify patients as homeless. Once we built out that base of, of the identified population, then methodology-wise we compared the homeless population to the non-homeless population in, in Medicaid contracts uh, in our system. So we really do an apples-to-apples comparison of, of adults in Medicaid contracts were not flagged as housing insecure versus those that were. So is housing
4: insecure and and homeless, are they the same category? Because I, I think of housing as secure as sometimes they can couch surf. Am I am I yes. thinking about that wrong?
6: No, that's definitely the right way to think about it. So the, the study we have is housing insecure and homelessness. So patients specifically identified as homeless, we count as housing insecure as well. But there are people who uh, did not have a comfortable place to sleep or a steady home in a month. We would count that as well if they're couch surfing. Uh, and from some of the assessments we've seen, there's, there's some middle ground as well where people couch surf for part of the month and they uh, have nowhere to stay for part of the month. So
4: if you could give our listeners a general overview of the results, that would be fantastic.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So we saw a few things uh, and there was kind of what we expected to see than what we actually saw. And, and the primary thing that really stood out to us was just how much more chronically ill the homeless pop or housing insecure population was than the rest of the Medicaid population. So for instance, 35% of the 2,500 housing insecure members we looked at had chronic uh, congestive heart failure. That's 21 times more than the, the rest of the Medicaid population. of these patients had diabetes. So it's one in five housing insecure patients had diabetes, again, five times more than the rest of the Medicaid population. 21% had chronic acute renal failure, and 22% had uh, congestive, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. So, and that was eight times more than the rest of the population. So these are really severe chronic illnesses uh, that are where the prevalence is really quite high.
4: So why is diabetes five times more prevalent for housing insecure individuals?
6: My theory there would be if you can't, if you don't have access to, to housing, you probably also don't have access to um, nutritious meals. You, you may often be food insecure as well, uh, meaning you, you're not able to manage your diabetes. You're not able to um, to avoid you know, the more chronic illness of diabetes. You're probably not getting identified as pre-diabetic and, and having that opportunity to stop the progression as well.
4: So you said um, people without proper housing are twenty times, 21 times more likely to have congestive heart failure. Why is that?
6: Yeah, I think so congestive heart failure is often uh, more it's much more prevalent in seniors. So I think for for the Medicaid populations that we we're looking at, congestive heart failure is not very prevalent at all. Uh, I think it's it's about four uh, percent. And then when you're looking at when you're looking at the the homeless population, it's all the way up at thirty five percent. So that that twenty one x increase is because um, the prevalence is quite low for a Medicaid population because typically they're they're under sixty five. And then uh, for the housing insecure population, they their chronic disease burden is much closer to the, a Medicare population or seniors than uh, their age would suggest.
4: Were you able to measure over time, how long the, um, I'm not, it's kind of chicken and egg, but the housing insecurity or the chronic illness do they run alongside each other? Or did one predate the other?
6: So we, we weren't able to make that inference in the data we have. Um, in, in theory, there, there have been other studies that show um, based on upbringing, based on certain factors throughout your life, you become much more likely or predisposed to chronic illness. So it's likely that some patients were on the path to severe chronic illness before they became housing insecure. Some patients may have even become housing, become housing insecure because of the cost of those chronic illnesses, um, but we can't specifically say without, without speculating.
4: So what did you see in the data that led to your conclusion?
6: Yeah, so, so for the chronic disease burden, uh, we have the ability to just calculate prevalence rates and look at the patients who weren't housing insecure versus those who were. But it was also backed up by the cost. So one thing that we saw was from a, a cost perspective, the housing insecure population also, not just did they have indicators of disease about, that were more significant than the rest of the Medicaid population. They also spent a lot more than the rest of the Medicaid population. Uh, significant spend, especially in, in in the ER. So a lot of patients were going to the ER and subsequently admitted. Uh, and, and the actual stat I could throw out there is that uh, patients who are housing insecure spend $536 more per month uh, than, than the non-housing insecure population on admissions to a hospital that began in the ER. So patients presented in the ER and being admitted. So we saw the, the cost and then we saw the, the disease burden on the other side.
4: So I wonder what recommendations would you make to help stem the tide of this state of affairs.
6: I think there's a few important things. I think that with the right level of investment, I think when I think about the cost differentials for the housing insecure population versus the non-housing insecure population, to me that's actually a real opportunity and a funding mechanism where there's now an incentive to reduce to intervene with social and health resources with housing insecure patients. And it can be funded through reducing that medical expense that the Medicaid um, or that the state has to pay through Medicaid anyway. So that's one thing that I think about when I look at these results, and that's uh, the funding mechanism, and that there's there's an incentive to justify investment. Additionally, I think, given that the housing insecure population has such a high disease burden, I think it's really important that there's better coordination between the health systems, and the social resources, so that there's uh, patients are being taken care of from a housing perspective while also being managed from a health perspective. And I think if those are coordinated, that that could uh, improve this issue.
4: So what does that look like um, in a real world setting?
6: Yeah, so some programs that I've seen people run is uh, putting a a care manager, so a, a registered nurse partnering them with the patient as their care manager while also uh, connecting patients to social workers and um, local area support systems. So not doing those two things separate, or maybe you try and uh, put a care manager with a patient and then you also try and direct them to uh, a social services in the area, but instead coordinating that through health systems. I think that could be one way to improve uh, and really impact patients.
4: Did you have any demographic information on the population that you studied?
6: We didn't look at the high-level demographics. What we can say is that typically most of the patients who were identified as housing insecure in our study were in urban areas, primarily on the East and West Coast.
4: At what point do you think social services intervention would be appropriate for this population?
6: Now and probably uh, a long time ago. I think that early intervention is key, especially when I see some of the conditions patients have in this population. It might be, you know, in some cases, almost too late. So I would say early intervention is key. I think I, ideally patients are identified before uh, they develop congestive heart failure or end stage renal disease and managed earlier. Uh, but I would say, If a patient is identified now who's housing insecure and severely ill, it's it's not too late to intervene. So I'd say now is the right time, but earlier would have been a better time.
4: Earlier meaning as soon as they were discovered, as soon as they were, as soon as an intake was done.
6: That's correct. Or better screening for. for poverty and, and the things that lead to housing insecurity as well with, with earlier intervention and opportunities to to connect patients to community resources.
4: Did you see any um, did you see any changes either up or down um, as far as the pandemic? What kind of impact did the pandemic have on this data?
6: Yeah, so from a housing insecurity perspective, we did not see a major shift, but part of the issue is I think that, you know, in data, there are still a lot of patients who are housing insecure that are not identified. What we did see was a major increase in employment insecurity. So that's one of the things that we are using ICD codes and assessments to map for, and we saw a significant increase in the number of patients we identified with employment insecurity uh, after the start of the pandemic, than pre-pandemic.
4: I wonder how much of that employment insecurity is because of the chronic illness, though, did you take a look at any of that, or was that not part of the?
6: So we didn't. We didn't look at chronic illness for p- patients who are, had employment insecurity. The spend was higher for patients with employment insecure, insecurity, uh, and generally speaking, Medicare spend is higher in, in underserved communities, and that's where there's there's more likely to be employment insecurity.
4: Okay. Do you foresee any reduction or returns to baseline, for lack of a better term? as the pandemic subsides, or do you think this is just going to continue to escalate?
6: I think the disease burden of housing insecure patients has always been an issue, and I don't see that changing when the pandemic goes away or uh, improves, we'll say. What I, what I would hope is, I think a lot of patients were likely, or, or people were likely impacted by the pandemic, and that may Increase rates of uh, housing and food insecurity and employment insecurity. Optimistically, my hope is that after the pandemic recedes, we will uh, stop having that increase and get back to baseline. But there probably are a large number of people who have been significantly impacted by the pandemic and may um, may have challenges for years to come as a result of two years of not having access to certain types of food and maybe not having the same access to clinical support as well since there were periods of the pandemic where you couldn't just you, you were not as able to walk into clinics and and get the help that some patients likely needed
4: this is um wow this is this is I mean, I don't even know what to say. And then I worry about people falling through the cracks, you know, like there were, you know, you, you were able to, to get a lot of people for this study. I worry about the people who are just like extremely on the margins, who don't even have access to resources like what you guys put together. To-
6: no, absolutely. Yeah. That's That's always our our goal is to get better at identifying the patients who, who fall through the cracks. Unfortunately, one challenge we always have is when, when patients aren't utilizing healthcare at all, we have even less information. And if you're off, if you're not utilizing healthcare, if you're not utilizing social services, if you're housing insecure, it's very hard to identify patients with those challenges. So the hope is that as we improve, we can identify more and more people. Uh, and, and help those also
4: people also to help to to provide this data to local governments so that uh, this data is actionable so that some sort of plan is put in place. Is that part of the goal? Um,
6: Absolutely. I think the, the justification of investment is a big part of why we've why we built this, but why we're also doing this analysis is to put out there that this is not uh, there is a social cost on the healthcare side. For patients who are not being cared for um, with community resources. So if we can help patients get access to the right community resources, we can reduce medical spend, and that's how we can fund those programs. So my hope is that with some of this analysis, we're able to better justify investment in social programs at the the state and federal level, uh, as well as through some of the new contracts in healthcare. So part of the value-based care space is uh, giving health entities, for lack of a better term, a, a, a reason to better support their patients uh, and in a, a financial incentive to reduce the healthcare spend of their populations. So my hope is this analysis will help uh, health systems that are closer to the patients invest, help states invest through, through better Medicaid programs, and help the federal government invest. Uh, I know with the new Medicare program, there's some called ACO reach, there are health equity benchmarks and components that can hopefully spur further investment in the space.
4: So what studies are you planning for the future?
6: Yeah, I think, so we've, we've done the groundwork for the identification piece. We've dug in deep on the, the homelessness side. Our next step is to dig into uh, other specific social categories and see if we can identify different trends and identify better methods of partnering patients with with community resources. So right now we're in the state of identify patients, try and support our customers in building out programs. The next step is once those programs are live operational and we now have patients that have had interventions, can we build the right algorithms to, uh, or can can we do the right analysis to do two things? One, prove out that those interventions work. And then to better identify patients earlier. So, our data science team is always working on building what we call our impact ecosystem, which is a series of algorithms that identify patients who are most likely to be impacted by a certain type of intervention. So, we're trying to build out our algorithm now that would identify a patient who, with the right combination of a registered nurse and community resources, could be very impactable from a health perspective. So, the patients that might be on their way to severe disease, but have not quite gotten there yet.
4: Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing this data. Uh, This is really important work you guys are doing. I hope you'll come back um, and talk about further data sets that you guys are doing, because this is really urgent and really uh, pressing for um, the medical community and the health community to be aware of.
6: Thanks for giving me the opportunity to come here and and speak about some of this.
4: Jacob Hotchberg, thank you very much for your time today. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time.